The reading is a poem by Thomas Lux. It's called, You Go to School to Learn. You go to school to learn to read and add to someday make some money. It, money, makes sense. You need a better tractor, an addition to the game room. You prefer to buy your bean curd by the barrel. There's no other way to get the goods you need. Besides, it keeps people busy working for it. It's sensible, and therefore you go to school to learn, and the teacher, having learned, gets paid to teach you how to get it. Fine, but you're taught away from poetry, or, say, dancing. That's nice, dear, but there's no dough in it. No poem ever bought a hamburger. Not too many. It's true. And so every morning, it's still dark. You see them, the children, like angels, being marched off to execution or banks, their bodies luminous in the headlights, going to school. Resisting reasonable atrocity, it seems like a heavy topic for a long weekend. I was at the state fair yesterday, and I was more focused on resisting the bucket of cookies, which seemed very reasonable. Yeah, I'll just get a bucket of cookies. But I'm going to plunge in here, and I'm going to take us 10,000 miles south and east of where we're sitting right now to the southern tip of Africa. And a former South African paramilitary commander is looking across his dining room table into the interviewer's camera. And it's a beautiful, sunny day, and the sunlight is coming through the windows. And he's a man in his early 60s, overweight with short gray hair. He's wearing glasses and a polo shirt. And in this beautiful, sunny kitchen, he's talking about his former life. And this is what he says. He says, we were at war. We were at war. We believed that if the blacks were organized, they would rise up. They were trying to get weapons, and they would have used them on us. I did what I had to do to keep our country from descending into chaos If we didn't get them, they'd be shooting at us in a few years. So we found suspects and we took care of them. I did what I had to do to keep our country together and to protect us. What he's talking about is a program to assassinate teenagers, 14, 15-year-olds, kids who had committed no crime but who might one day, who might one day fight against the apartheid government. But did you hear how he put it together? Did you hear the reasons? Did you hear that the killings, what he was doing, was not passion or madness or blind hatred? He had reasons to do what he did. He had hard-headed, straightforward, pragmatic reasons. And I'll tell you, the assassinations sicken me, but the thought that they could be reasonable terrifies me. And it terrifies me because I can imagine those same words coming from politicians and pundits here, now. I can imagine reading them on editorial pages. And more than that, scarier than that, I can imagine them coming from my coworkers and coming from my friends. And I can imagine them coming from my own lips. It's not that far away. And that's the horror of what this commander had to say, that a reasonable and well-meaning people 
could support reasonable, pragmatic assassination or genocide or ethnic cleansing, and that these acts weren't just the product of force or political trickery. They're the product of bright, reasonable people making bright, reasonable arguments about how best to protect themselves. It happens in venues less vivid than political assassination. It happens in much more ordinary ways. It happens much closer to home. As recently as 50 years ago, here in Minnesota and around the country, there were programs called redlining and restrictive covenants, former po formal policies that excluded African Americans from certain neighborhoods. So in redlining, the bank would literally draw a red line on a map around a neighborhood and refuse to give mortgages to anyone in that neighborhood. Restrictive covenants were part of a housing deed, and I'll bet that a lot of you in this room if you go back, if you have old houses, I'll bet the deeds from 80 or 100 years ago, some of them have this. Restrictive covenant says you can never sell this house to non-whites or allow non-whites to live there. Now, deed restrictions like that, redlining, these sound absurd. They're clearly illegal. This is long settled law. But what gives me pause is that the people who used both of those, the people who did both of those, didn't claim to be motivated by racism. That wasn't the reason they were doing what they did. That wasn't the way they framed it up. Instead, it was objective market demand that justified, that required redlining. Government agencies and banks and homeowners, they all argued that if non-whites moved into a neighborhood, property values would go down. Segregation in housing wasn't racism, it was scientific necessity to carry out the will of the market. And exclusionary housing loan practices, these were the mere response to objective market demands. And I hear that and I read about it and I wonder, what else today is framed that way? What other practices today do I assent to because there's a common sense appeal to reason. I wonder, what don't I even see right in front of me because I'm thinking about it in economic terms and not the terms of justice? Or because someone else has framed the conversation and I don't know what to listen for? Well, a thousand miles southwest of us right here, due southwest, there's a different story unfolding in Arizona and it's a story that's on hold right now, for the most part, waiting for a court fight. But it's worth reviewing just exactly what Arizona Senate Bill 1070 allowed. Federal law requires aliens, people living in the U.S. who aren't citizens, to register with the government and carry proof of that registration. And in state law, SB 1070, Arizona made the violation of that requirement a state crime and allowed state police officers to arrest anyone in violation of that requirement. But the, the trick here is that officers can demand papers, can demand proof from anyone who they have a, quote, reasonable suspicion is not a U.S. citizen. And what does that mean? It means if a police officer thinks that you might not be a U.S. citizen, they can demand proof of citizenship for you. Now, 
If everyone in the U.S. was white, and you couldn't tell a citizen of Mexican heritage apart from a citizen of Norwegian heritage, reasonable suspicion might require actual detective work. But the primary and the most easily identifiable characteristic shared by immigrants from Mexico is a darker skin color than me. Senate Bill 1070 states that police, quote, may not solely consider race or color or national origin when executing the law, but I don't think that language means a whole lot. And let me give you a very cynical analogy to explain why I think that way. If I was told to pick out a basketball player from a group of people, and if I was instructed not to solely consider height as the basis of making my selection, I'm still going to pick the tall person, but I'm going to come up with another reason. He's tall, and he's wearing sneakers. He's, that means I'm not profiling, right? Because he's wearing sneakers. Never mind that most of the tall people I know don't play basketball, and my whole approach is flawed. Never mind that. To me, as a white Minnesotan, the ugliness of Senate Bill 1070 has less to do with immigration policy, per se, than the fact that it allows any police officer to stop any person who the officer thinks might be undocumented and to make that stop, which has to be a lawful stop, for essentially any reason, broken taillight, idling for more than three minutes in one place, and so on, and demand papers. And that means if you're not white in Arizona, a police officer can stop you and ask for proof of citizenship. And that's racism. And there's no plainer way to say it. And there are plenty of ways to cover that up and dress it up and hide it behind the guise of being reasonable. There are plenty of ways not to have to see that. The framing of that conversation and the way it's portrayed convince me more than anything else of the need for critical education that teaches how to recognize and how to resist these common sense truths that lead us into calamity. And to resist, we need both a critical awareness, but awareness alone isn't enough. We've got to trust our own voice to speak up, to speak out against it. There's a lot at work against the critical awareness. There's an inertia that's hard to overcome. I saw it a few years ago. I taught a semester of high school history, ninth graders. And I remember in the final period of a school day on a Tuesday afternoon in the fall, I was grading quizzes and a parent of one of my students, one of my ninth graders, stops by unexpectedly. The kid was not doing well in class. But I told the father, look, your son is a bright kid. And you can see it when he participates in discussion. When he's in the conversation, he has sharp questions, good questions, good comments. He's not afraid to challenge other ideas. Yeah, said his father. He thinks he's smart. Like when he watches the news with me, he's always asking me these questions, and I say, shut up, they'll tell you in a minute. But he thinks he's smarter than them. Oh, the father's reply to the son, that was 
exactly the opposite of what I was trying to teach in the class and in the religious education classes I've taught and in this ministry that I serve. I tell my students, and I'll tell all of you, ask questions, investigate, challenge sources, talk to each other if you don't agree with each other. But the message that this young man got at home was sit down and shut up, and they're going to tell you the answer. And it's a view that says all the knowledge and all the power is the exclusive domain of politicians and pundits. The authorities have it. The news broadcasters have it. But we don't. It's a view that says this way we live our life, this way our world is put together, the way things are right now, this is the only way it could be, and we just need someone to explain to us why it is that way. But here in this church community, over the dinner table, everywhere, we've got to ask each other just the opposite question. In what way is our world not as it ought to be? Why? 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 There's a long tradition in our faith that is encapsulated by what William Ellery Channing said. The great end in religious instruction is not to stamp our minds on the young, but to stir up their own, not to make them see with our eyes, but to look inquiringly and steadily with their own, and not to give them a definite amount of knowledge, but to inspire a fervent love of truth. Education, religious education, religion are not about teaching people to wait for someone else to explain the world. We've got to learn to see for ourselves, not just to be able to perceive or describe this complex world, but also to perceive that it can change, that it can change, that the lives we lead can change. We take it all as if it's fixed, as if we're powerless to change it and powerless to change ourselves, and it's going to be this way forever. But this world is in constant process and constant transformation, and so are we ourselves. You can recognize it intellectually, but a trained mind isn't enough to make a difference. It also takes the courage to speak or act, and that is hard. That can be hard to do. I don't mean speeches before thousands. I mean, it can be downright difficult in a group of two or three people to speak out and stand firm when you're having dinner with your cousins or your friends or coworkers. It's a skill that takes practice and takes a trust in yourself, the belief that you've got something to offer and that you can make a difference. However incomplete or imperfect the work is ours to do, that faith in your voice, it's built in lots of little ways and slowly, and it's also continually eroded. And I'm thinking of a student who I had in my ninth grade world history class, and the kids are all paired off into groups of two or three, and they're doing a mapping exercise. How long does it take to sail from Rome to Carthage? 
And the room's got this low buzz, and the kids are flipping through the atlases and talking with each other and filling out the worksheet. And two students are having trouble with it. And a third student, a young woman, is moving back and forth between these other two kids. And she's showing them where to find maps at the back of the textbook. And she's helping them find, all right, here's Carthage, here's Alexandria, here's Rome. And I'm standing back, and I'm watching these kids work. And there's a moment of pause where she becomes aware that I'm watching them. And I almost came over to say to her, this is great. This is great. I'm really impressed. You're doing a great job of helping these other folks out. It's awesome. But I hesitated an instant too long, and she looked up from helping these other kids, and she said, will you please be the teacher? Oh, was I being a teacher? I was thrown off. On reflection, I see the student was training me how to be the teacher, how to be what she thought a teacher was, just as fiercely as I was trying to train her how to be what I thought a student was. But to her, I, the teacher, had the knowledge and had the power, and she was waiting for me to drop that information in But in that situation, I didn't say anything either. I didn't speak. I didn't, in that moment, applaud her leadership and teaching skills. I didn't correct her. I didn't say, no, no, no. You're doing just what I hope, just what I want to see. And what made me hesitate? Her plea that I be the teacher made me doubt myself, and I let it drop. Intellectual understanding And critical thinking make no concrete difference to the world without the courage and the skill to speak up. We develop that skill over time, and the courage comes in part from practice. And this community is a community of practice. The practice, the work to develop it, it, it may not be what you think. I don't think it's learning how to debate or argue or say just the right word at just the right time. I don't think that's what I I mean here. The courage to speak comes from your faith, comes from connecting with what you believe at the root and heart of things. There are opportunities to develop that. I know this fall here at First Universalist, you'll have the opportunity to join sermon-based small group conversations to meet monthly as a group of eight to ten people, either for the fall or for the whole year long. And the groups each month are centered on the monthly themes, on the sermons, but the purpose of the groups is listening. It's not to fix each other or to solve each other's problems. It's not to debate or share theories or generalities or advice. It's to listen and to practice speech, to practice honest, whole, true-telling of our own stories, a small group covenanted with each other to go deep, to speak the truth, to connect with each other without pretending that everything's perfect or even that everything is okay. I invite you to join these. I invite you out of my own experience. I'm, I'm part of a small group, a men's group that meets monthly, and the five of us do that same sort of work Rigorous honesty, listening, speaking to each other, 
And it is hard work. It is hard, exhausting work. You wouldn't think that listening for an hour, an hour and a half would be so tiring. But it's a spiritual practice, too. It's a spiritual practice because in authentic connection, I find renewed compassion and renewed courage and a renewed ethic of service. I find faith that we're worth it. Faith that I'm part of something bigger than myself, that I'm not more or less than any other person, and that everyone is worthy, that no one is excluded. And what I really mean is this. Our first principle, in those moments of listening and speaking and telling our stories, our first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, ceases to be an abstract idea and becomes a concrete and a lived reality. And when that's true, when I don't just think it, but I feel it and I know it, when I know the stories of my fellow men and women, when I let that spirit act on me, it changes me. It changes my life. It changes what I'm capable of. The Unitarian Universalist minister Jack Mendelson put it this way. He said, If we truly love the world so that we can dare to defy it, we'll have to get much closer than any phony worldliness permits. We'll have to immerse ourselves in its sorrows, taste its bitter cups, and open our hearts to its most painful conflicts and tensions. And then, and only then, only then can our lives speak truth to the world in the spirit of love. It may sound like an abstraction, which is far away from that sunshine-filled dining room in South Africa and the calm and rational arguments for assassination. It may feel like the language of spirituality, of connection with each other, is far away and remote from red-lined maps. But the horror of reasonable atrocities is never far behind. We heard in recent years debates on the merits of torture, whether this was something we should do for good, reasonable, pragmatic reasons. We hear it now in the reasonable suspicion that law enforcement officers have to have before stopping and demanding papers. You've heard these good and reasonable and common sense arguments. We are called to stay vigilant against good people with good, rational reasons trying to convince us of terrible things. And it's not just for high school students to learn how to do this. It's for each one of us again and again. And I say that as if I figured it all out and I'm just up here preaching, which I guess I am sort of preaching. But I'm not here to tell you what that answer is or pretend that you don't already know this or have answers, a path of your own. I'm here to share notes from the road and add them to your own traveling notes, and together we try and figure out the path ahead because this task is neither an intellectual exercise nor just activism. It requires that we root ourselves in our deepest moral and spiritual commitments and convictions, and therefore, above all, attend diligently to your relationship with the divine, the root of strength for the journey and courage to speak. Pray and meditate and sing and seek whole and honest 
connections to each other? What will we do to tend our spirits as this summer ends? May we answer that question and may we each journey together from unknowing into awareness, from silence into speech, from acceptance into action, sending down those deep roots and aligning our lives with our deepest faith. Amen.